This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. Food is my love language. Eating together is my number one favorite way to spend time with chosen family. When I think about the meals I've shared with other queer folks, I think about the couch that my partner used to have in their kitchen, always piled high with pals, intermittently taking turns to get more snacks. I think about crying at brunch the morning after a dance party gone awry. I think about cooking arroz con gandules for 50 people in the aftermath of the Pulse shooting. And I think a lot about stumbling to late night pizza spots or taco trucks or diners before the long bike ride home. I'm Nico Whistler, and I'm the host of Queer the Table, a new show on the Heritage Radio Network about queer identity and food. All season long, we'll be talking about the importance of gathering in queer community to eat together. So it feels especially important to start with a reminder that the right to do that visibly and in public space has been hard won. For a lot of folks, it's still being fought for. In this episode, you'll hear the stories of three often overlooked trans and queer-led uprisings that took place in the decade leading up to the Stonewall Riots all of them in late-night restaurants where queer people gathered to eat in community. We're going to work backwards, starting in San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood in 1966, three years before Stonewall. At the corner of Turk and Taylor sat Jean Compton's cafeteria, the site of the Compton's Cafeteria riot, a pivotal moment in trans history. Although Compton's no longer stands, the neighborhood is still an important home for trans folks in San Francisco. Last year, the city named it an official transgender cultural district, the first in the nation. To get the story of Compton's, I met up with Colette Legrand, a San Francisco drag icon, just down the street from the old Compton site in her dressing room at Aunt Charlie's Lounge. I was born in Missouri, and my mother and father got, oh, I don't know, whatever it was, divorced or whatever, when I must have been about three or four years old. So I, I really never saw my father again after that, so it was just my mother. And she was not a very demonstrative person you know what I mean and so I was left alone a lot by myself so my friend and I were one day were struggling I mean I, I even at 15 sort of knew I was different but I wasn't quite sure what and so my friend said well let's go to San Francisco you know and so we got on the bus and came to San Francisco and we didn't really know where to go I mean we were just wandering around and it was open and we went in there you know and because uh, the bus station was just on 7th Street, where it is, where it used to be, right there on 7th and Market. And so we got off the bus and we wandered around and we said, well, where can somebody go around here to get a coffee? And they said, oh, go to Compton's. It's around the corner. So we walked over there. You know what I mean? And we went in there and I felt comfortable the minute I walked in. I don't know why. They just had an atmosphere in there that, you know, like this place is for people that don't quite fit. That's the first time I ever saw a transgender person. And for some reason or another, something clicked here, even though it took me a long time to get to that point personally, but something clicked. And I said, you know what? This place is a, kind of like a, a haven, if that makes any sense. In 2005, a filmmaker named Susan Stryker released a documentary about the Compton's Cafeteria Riot called Screaming Queens. Stryker started researching trans history after beginning her own transition as a way to establish a sense of community. She became interested in the riots after stumbling upon a paper in the archives of the Gay and Lesbian Historical Society that described the event. 
Screaming Queens is the result of her quest to uncover the story of what happened at Compton's. Susan wasn't available to be interviewed for this episode, but generously agreed to let me use some of her tape. Hers is the first voice that you'll hear on the upcoming clip. Compton's was a well-established local restaurant chain with several San Francisco locations. Everybody that lived in the turn line ate it at Compton's. I would get like a poached egg on toast or and juice and bacon strips for $1.99. Compton's was a great place to meet because it was like centralized. Right next door was the bathhouse for the gay men and it was convenient to the corner. If you wanted to have a drink on the at the corner bar, you could. Or you could tiptoe down to Woolworths and get more eyelashes. In July of 1966, members of a new organization called Vanguard, made up of young queer hustlers and drag queens, began meeting at Compton's. Vanguard members were militant and riotous in ways that their predecessors were not. They described the organization as of, by, and for the kids of the street. They protested business discrimination and the frequent street sweeps performed by the police to force homeless kids off the streets of the Tenderloin. The Compton's management started kicking out or refusing to serve Vanguard members. In response, Vanguard organized a picket at the cafeteria. The picket didn't change the new policy at Compton's, but it did set the stage for the riot that followed. The police were always hassling the girl, the transgender girls and the, and the street girls. So one night, I guess there was just, they got fed up and they said, well, you know what, we're going to fight back. And they did. Some sources claim that the police went to Compton's that night with the intention to incite violence, while others say that the girls had just had enough of their routine stop-ins. The document that launched my research in the first place said the fighting started when a policeman grabbed one of the queens and she threw her coffee in his face. Someone had thrown coffee in his face and there was tables turned over. Compton's erupted. People started throwing everything they could get their hands on at the police. All of the sugar shakers went through the windows and the glass doors. I think I put a sugar shaker through one of those windows. The hustlers kicked the police and punched them, and the drag queens beat them with their heavy purses. The cops retreated outside to call for backup, but cafeteria customers, maybe 60 in all, poured into the streets through the broken doors and windows and kept fighting as the paddy wagons pulled up. The riot lasted for multiple days. Colette, as well as many of the folks interviewed by Susan Stryker, felt that afterwards the local media did their best to bury the story. Why is it important to you that the story of Compton's is being told now? Well, I think it's important now because it's part of the history of the LGBT movement. You know what I mean? And I think as someone who considers myself transgender, I think it's important that people other than people in San Francisco know the story, you know, that this is something that's been going on for many, many years. You know, transgender people have been around a long time, but it not something that everybody can accept, you know what I mean? But they played a very significant role in the history of San Francisco. Yeah, and not just in San Francisco, you know? Everywhere. I mean, New York and, you know, every there's transgender people in every city. I mean, even small towns in the Midwest, I know people. And it's hard for a lot of people that aren't familiar with lifestyle or what it really is to understand or something. So they sort of put blinders up. But this was an actual event 
a historical event that needs to be focused on so that at least, if nothing else, the LGBT community understands where their history is. Throughout the 60s, many of the organizing tactics used by queer activists, at the time often referred to as homophile activists, were borrowed from other movements of the era, particularly the civil rights and black power movements. A prime example of this is the Dewey's Cafeteria sit-in that took place in Center City, Philadelphia in 1965. Historian Mark Stein told me the story. My name is Mark Stein, and uh, I'm a professor of history at San Francisco State University. Uh, My first book was called City of Sisterly and Brotherly Loves, Lesbian and Gay Philadelphia, 1945-1972. And it was basically a history of gay and lesbian relationships um, in Philadelphia from the 1940s to the 70s. But as part of that, I devoted quite a few chapters to the, you know, what was known at the time as the homophile movement and then into the lesbian, feminist and gay liberation movements of the early 70s. And uh, those chapters included a discussion of the sit-in at Dewey's. So why don't we start with just an overview of what was Dewey's and what, what happened there? Well, Dewey's was a um, basically a lunch counter chain um, local in Philadelphia, but by the time the sit-in occurred in the 1960s, uh, there were more than a dozen um, branches of Dewey's. The two most relevant for LGBT history were the ones at 13th Street and 17th Street in Center City, Philadelphia. Those two sites had, uh, from all accounts, a quite significant LGBT Uh, clientele. So uh, from what we know, and there are very few documents about what exactly happened in 1965, but in late April, um, the Dewey's management uh, at the 17th Street location started um, refusing service uh, to, uh, as was described at the time, um, people wearing nonconformist clothing masculine, women, feminine men, and homosexuals. So on this particular day in late April, when by all accounts, 150 people had been denied service and asked to leave, three teenagers, two were identified as male, one was identified as female. We have to, of course, be careful about those designations because we know now about the common misgendering of people, Um, but they refused to leave. And that essentially began a sit-in. They, they stayed for several hours. The management called police. Um, at some point, uh, uh, the local political leader of the gay movement, a man named Clark Pollock, he became aware of what was going on. So he rushed down. His offices were very close by. He rushed down to offer assistance, including legal assistance, to the three teenagers. Clark Pollock was the leader of the Janus Society, an early homophile organization that had been founded in Philadelphia in 1962. Pollock was a pretty atypical gay leader for the time. He was sex positive, very supportive of trans people and hustlers, and a self-proclaimed proud defender of promiscuity. And uh, he offered help, and then the police arrested him. Uh, So the police ended up arresting all four, the three teenagers and Clark Pollock. At that point, the Janus Society mobilized and they organized a five-day protest demonstration. And then on the fifth day, so by now it's early May, just to kind of test what would happen uh, if a similar disruption occurred, there was another sit-in where LGBT people refused to leave. And this time the police were called, but the police refused to arrest anybody. And essentially they and the Janus Society and the larger movement and community declared victory. 
This victory also represented a shift towards a new kind of organizing, one that would prove to be much more closely related to Stonewall and Compton's than many of the actions that came before it. Yeah, it's a really um, it's a really interesting episode of direct action. It began very much in the community, though then became supported by the movement. So uh, it's also interesting, I think, sometimes the movement of that era was a bit distant from the community, but this is really a, an instance where the movement in the community uh, came together. It's interesting because of um, the fact that it clearly was a, a lesbian, gay, and trans um, coalition involved in working on these issues. Interesting that the homophile movement um, foregrounded the issues of what they term masculine women and feminine men, uh, which again is uh, somewhat at odds with our usual picture of the movement of that era. Right. And there's also such a through line between Dewey's and earlier lunch counter protests in the civil rights movement. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to me, it's, you know, it's quite clear that the upsurge in LGBT demonstrations starting in 1965 and leading up to Stonewall were, were very clearly inspired by the civil rights movement. And, and even in some of the people who demonstrated speak of having earlier marched in civil rights protests and now shifting or or adding their energies to uh, homophile protests. So sit-ins, of course, um, you know, the most famously the 1960 uh, World War lunch counter sit-in in Greensboro uh, that ended up leading to the formation of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. But that really was just the instigator for what became hundreds and hundreds of sit-ins and protests at other Woolworths, at other businesses. And I think it's clear that um, that was in the mind of the people who conducted the sit-in in, in, in Philadelphia at Dewey's in 1965. And then as, you know, there are problems with this formulation, but I think there was a shift from a civil rights orientation to a black power orientation in the mid-1960s. So it's interesting, in some respects, the homophile movement was uh, kind of a step behind as other movements were radicalizing later in the 60s. Um, the homophile movement was really just getting going with direct action protests. That said, um, the homophile movement quickly began to catch up. So uh, when, for example, the gay movement adopted the slogan, uh, gay is good, it was clearly uh, based on black is beautiful. And the riots themselves, the Stonewall riots themselves in 1969, to me, although there's a, a gap chronologically between the Watts rebellion and the Stonewall riots, there were summer riots across the United States in black communities leading up to 1969. And so it seems clear that that was a direct uh, inspiration for Stonewall. Yeah, I think in reading the paper you sent over, a lot of your work is able to kind of provide context for Stonewall and kind of get rid of this myth that there wasn't organizing happening and that it was kind of a spontaneous and then the organizing started? Uh, yeah, I've long been interested. We probably now have documented about 30 uh, LGBT direct action protests before Stonewall, but uh, just using the ones that I just listed, five or six of them targeted um, places of consumption, so bars, restaurants principally. Uh, and then Stonewall led to... Uh, many more such protests in the in the early 1970s. Right. And I think, too, what I think about and one of the reasons that I am interested in restaurants specifically, like because they're places of consumption, but it's also, you know, the right to be in public space and to eat in public space. And bars are crucial for that community, too. But especially thinking about in Philadelphia, that these were three 
teenagers. So they didn't necessarily have access to bars. So in what ways was this a lot around claiming not just what queer people do in private, but really public space. Right. No, that's a great point. And I, I think that's very, very true. And it's about rights of assembly. It's about the need for um, spaces of community. Uh, and that's particularly important for certain communities that were, were marginalized, even within gay bars, which were the central institution of, of LGBT life in the period. Um, so that might include lesbians, trans people. It would also include people of color and um, and young people. I find interesting the issue of business discrimination uh, also um, because on a certain level, businesses occupy this ambiguous space between the private sphere and the public sphere. The general uh, legal framework says that if you're a business that holds yourself open to the public, that welcomes the public, that advertises to the public, well, that crosses a line into the public sphere. And so in that sense, it's not an accident that many civil rights battles played out at places of consumption like like a lunch counter. Restaurants, after all, were emerging as much much more central places for uh, social life, for community life. And as that began to be the case, it became more and more important to uh, various communities to assert their right to participate in consumer culture on an equal basis. Right, and thinking about too that kind of not quite public, not quite private space that uh, a place of consumption might occupy, and in particular a place where you can get food might occupy from what I've, from the oral histories that I've read around Dewey's and, and Compton's and Cooper's, just how crucial it was to have a place to be able to be off the street and get warm and get something warm to drink and catch up and check in on people at the end of the night, really for safety and for community safety. Right. Yeah. And the oral histories I conducted definitely refer to uh, using Dewey's, using the various Dewey's as places to duck into um, if you were, uh, certainly if you were homeless, but uh, but even if you were um had a home but say weren't out to your family uh and you were out at night and you needed a safe place to go right uh and um and as you pointed out depending on your age or as i pointed out uh with respect to gender discrimination and race discrimination in in other businesses like bars uh, a, a lunch counter you know it was cheap it was supposedly open to all. It was nearby. It was in proximity to a lot of the businesses that people frequented. So um, eateries were really, really important. Right, right. Yeah, they serve kind of a role, it seems like, beyond what they might serve for straight or cisgender or gender-conforming people. Right. And I, in, the, in the, my Philadelphia book, I tried to talk uh, fairly extensively about bars, restaurants, clubs, uh, and bathhouses uh-huh. as for really key businesses uh, in the 50s and 60s. And so you had more pricey locations like Maxine's, which was right in the middle of the gay um, bar district in Philadelphia. But many people couldn't afford a place like Maxine's uh, or places of that kind and could afford Dewey's. And of course, like many kind of coffee shops um, or cafes uh, to this day, there are also places where you could linger. People talk about just uh, sipping on that cup of coffee for a very long period of time, <laughs> and that might be important, say, for a hustler 
or um, for a trans person on the street, right? And uh, one can understand why sometimes restaurant management would grow frustrated, especially if the if the place is packed and they need to make a living. Um, but but when they apply those rules in discriminatory ways, you know that's obviously a different story. So the riots at Compton's and Dewey's both took place in the 60s, a decade often associated with political activism and uprisings, especially when compared to the one that preceded it. But after the break, we'll hear from Lillian Faderman, an LGBTQ historian and writer about the Cooper's Donuts riot, which recently celebrated its 60th anniversary as it took place in the spring of 1959. I, uh, I got a phony ID. I was a teenager, uh, and I came out uh, in a a lesbian bar in Los Angeles in 1956. Um, And I I can tell you how scary it was to go to those bars, not just because I was a minor with the phony ID, but because one of the first things that I learned is that the cops could come in any minute and raid the bar simply because it was a homosexual bar. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy Lee Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry. Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Welcome back to Queer the Table. Lillian and I spoke on the phone about the Cooper's Donuts riot, so the audio quality of this next segment is less than ideal, but Lillian is wise and badass and inspiring in ways that I think make up for it. The 1950s, in in so many ways, they were such a terrible time, especially for gay people. So uh, McCarthyism witch-hunted homosexuals who worked for the federal government and that kind of filtered down to corporations and uh, even smaller employers who wanted to get rid of all of the homosexuals and even uh, hired these uh, businesses that said that they knew how to ferret out the homosexuals. So if if you were an identifiable homosexual in the 1950s, it was very hard to keep a job. 
there was um, witch hunting on college campuses. Churches, of course, considered us all sinners. The psychiatric profession considered us all crazies, and we were uh, in the American Psychiatric Profession's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And so no matter how well-adjusted you were in your life, if you were a homosexual, you were considered partly mentally ill, uh, uh, mentally disordered. Uh, There was sort of no area where you were safe. Despite the culture of fear and persecution that permeated gay life in the 50s, queer folks did carve out spaces where they could be in community. In downtown Los Angeles, one of these enclaves was a small strip of bars on Main Street. Flanked on either side by two of these bars, Harold's and the Waldorf, set Cooper's Donuts. So what what I can tell you is that um, gay men, uh, particularly uh, people that we would call trans today, but in those days they uh, called themselves very often queens. Trans was not a term in the late 1950s. Um, they, uh, they used to hang out in downtown Los Angeles. There were a number of bars there. Those bars were also called gay bars, whether or not the people who frequented them were trans. Um, so these people who called themselves queens would hang out at the gay bars. They would, uh, when the bars closed at 2 a.m., they would congregate at a all-night little restaurant called Cooper's Donuts, where you could get coffee and donuts and uh, other light things to eat. And it would be where they would socialize, and very often with them would be uh, men who identified as as hustlers, uh, butch guys, who were very close to many of the queens. And they, too, would leave the bars at 2 a.m. and go to Cooper's. It wasn't at all unusual for the police to uh, not only raid the gay bars, but just make their presence felt in in gay spots all over Los Angeles in the 1950s. Uh, Even if it wasn't a raid, they they would walk in in uniform and look around and be menacing. It was a very unpleasant situation. And they would do that wherever gay people congregated, not just the bars, but in a place like Cooper's Donuts. So they did that with some regularity. And uh, they they would often just walk around asking for IDs, and sometimes they would make arrests for whatever reason. This one particular night, the uh, the police came in, uh, asked for IDs, and then out of nowhere said, "You and you and you," and they they had uh, police cars that they wanted to put these guys into. When so when the police were coming in and asking for ID, I had read somewhere that that was because they were looking to see whether or not the gender marker on someone's ID matched their presentation that, at that time. That, yes, that certainly could have been the case and um, impersonation, quote unquote, was against the law and if if someone presented as a woman, and the ID said that that person was male, then that would have been reason enough for the police to arrest the person. But, you know, it, it wasn't just that. In, in bars, they were looking for minors. Uh, they were looking for people who were drunk. Any excuse, any excuse at all to 
intimidate the gay population was rampant among the police in Los Angeles in the late 1950s. Um, Usually, um, I think gay people were so intimidated by the police who could be so bullying and so hostile that they would feel they had no choice but to do it. They Mm -hmm. would get up and follow the police officer and let themselves be taken to the station and, and booked or whatever. This particular night, a couple of people decided that they would resist. And when they saw what the police were up to, they started throwing things towards the police, like coffee spoons and coffee stirrers, and and it, it turned into something of a mini-riot. And what happened as a result of the police realizing that they were outnumbered as they called for backup and other police cars came, and it was certainly nothing like um, the Stonewall riots, for very good reasons. This was in the late 1950s, and there weren't that many gay people or people that we would call trans today who felt that they could fight back, mm. um, that, that these young people did it in the late 1950s is nothing short of miraculous. Um, I, I think that another reason that it didn't grow into a huge riot, as the Stonewall riots did, is that it was Los Angeles, after all. And in Los Angeles, people don't walk as they do in <laughs> Greenwich Village. So there were people on the streets in great numbers to see what was going on and to to stick around and join the other protesters. But what what's so miraculous, I think, is that it could have happened. It was a a small resistance, and because of that resistance, they weren't carted off the way it would usually happen when the cops decided they would come in and be intimidating and arrest a few people just for the hell of it. So it didn't happen that night. It was a victory. It was a minor victory, but nevertheless, it it was a victory, and it was just a, a little footnote in our history, but a footnote not to be forgotten, I think. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's put so beautifully. What what does it feel like is the legacy or might be the legacy of Cooper's? I, I think the legacy is, is it, it's a legacy that any group that is or has been persecuted can really appreciate. It's nice to know that at that point when things were so terrible, at least some of us fought back. I think that that Cooper's Donuts is important in that way. It's it's one example of not simply accepting your fate, accepting persecution, but realizing that you could fight back. And, And those people who were there at Cooper's Donuts that night did exactly that. And so we remember it with with some kind of reverence, even though it wasn't a major riot. It was a mini-riot, and it lasted for one night. Hearing Susan talk about stumbling upon a report of the Compton's Cafeteria riot on a scrap of paper in an archive makes me think about all of the stepping stones in the movement that have already maybe been lost or forgotten, or maybe just have yet to be uncovered. I am 
endlessly grateful to Lillian, Mark, Susan, Colette, and all the others who keep and share queer food stories like these. They remind me that liberation doesn't happen spontaneously, that there's a slow bubbling up before the bursting. By listening to the show, you become a keeper of queer food stories past and present. May they bless all the tables you gather around. In the show notes, you'll find a link to watch Screaming Queens in its entirety for free, as well as links to the other guesswork. Queer the Table is produced by me, Nico Whistler. The logo was designed by Natalie Uduwella, and the theme song is by Denali Gillespie, who also inspired the name for the show. None of this would be possible without the support of the whole team at Heritage Radio. We are in the midst of our summer fun drive, and we need your support. You should become a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. Bring your body, bring your love, bring the ones you're thinking of. Make space and queer the table. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.